Welcome everyone to uh, the Seedcamp podcast. This is Carlos from Seedcamp in the middle of a London tube strike day. And I'm sitting here with Joel Gasconia from Buffer. And as usual, we would like to start with finding out a little bit more about the person behind the company and, and the success that they're at right now. So maybe Joel, we can start off a little bit with the history of, of, of you. Uh, what, what did you study? Where did you study? Um, and what happened right after you graduated? Yeah, sounds great. Thanks for having me. Having me here. Um, so, I studied computer science. Um, b- before that, when I was about 11, 12 years old, I ended up uh, doing, getting into like online gaming, um, Age of Empires, uh, some other games, and that was kind of ended up in hindsight. Realized that that was my way into like technology and that whole community, all those things. So, um, yeah, I got into kind of gaming online, and then. The community of gaming online, meeting people online, and and doing that, and then like there's teams that form uh, around games, and I ended up like being part of some teams and started a team basically uh, when I was like 11, and then realizing that you know that team was kind of growing, uh, just a lot of people ad hoc playing, but we had like it was kind of interesting to reflect on. We had like tryouts to join the team and things like some things that are kind of similar to the things that we do with Buffer but I didn't realize it at the time um, and yeah just uh, at some point it just suddenly made sense to have a website to explain like how the team works like who's part of it all these kind of things so that for me was where like transitioned to learning to code um, I just played around with GeoCities to begin with and uh, like moved from just using the like builder, like the website builder tool in GeoCities to diving into the HTML and CSS and things and learning that and then JavaScript and everything from there. So uh, yeah, and then I think over the next uh, couple of years, it really transitioned for me from like being really excited about the gaming to be being really excited about coding and building websites and things. And uh, so then I just kept doing that and learning a lot and uh, it was all table-based design back then, like really kind of old-school web, de- web development stuff. Um, but then when I was 15, I uh, that was when I suddenly had the first opportunity to like build a website commercially for and get paid for that. Uh, so that was kind of an amazing moment. Uh, it was the local golf club. Uh, I had a friend at school that was part of the golf club, and he mentioned to me that they were uh, thinking about a new design, a new version of their website, and they were going to work with like a, a pretty big uh, agency, like marketing agency to build that. And I kind of jumped in and said like, no, I, I could probably do that. And so Did you play any golf? No, not at all. So you like, didn't <laughs> exactly know what you were representing? But no, I, did, I wasn't really in, in that circle too much, but I just had this friend and he played a lot of golf and he was part of the club and things. Um, but yeah, that, that was kind of cool. So I, I just offered to do that and that ended up being like 400, 500 pounds um, when I was 15 which was like pretty nice um, and yeah that was that was the moment when it clicked for me where I realized like oh, wow like something that's been a hobby that I would just really love I can actually get paid for this now and I think that that changed a lot of things for me going forward from there in terms of university and things like that where I was not necessarily purely thinking on this like career track I was thinking like what, what how can I do what I want to do um, and I can do what I want to do and, and what I enjoy uh, so that was cool, and I started doing quite a lot of freelance contract web design. Uh, continued that throughout university. I did computer science at the University of Warwick, um, down near Birmingham, 
and uh, yeah, and then I did. There was a four-year course to get a master's in computer science. That was just like obvious for me. Um, I did uh, computing at, like for A levels as well, and yeah, I think. And then there, there was another kind of turning point for me during university, which was that I did a few. Um, projects third and fourth year had it like a project that I needed to do and I managed to do I managed to make it like a web-based thing when really a lot, most of the stuff was like deep algorithm stuff and things and I was really like interested in web things so I managed to do web-based projects for both of these kind of dissertation projects and throughout that time I also got involved with the like Warwick Entrepreneur Society and just generally getting to know other people uh, at university that were interested in entrepreneurship and like startups and stuff and discovered TechCrunch in that time and just my my mind was kind of blown and I was made aware of startups and I think that was the turning point during university to think like moving away from like just client work and being tied to like an hourly wage based on just the time I put in to realizing like oh you can you can create a product and just you know and escape and be you know away from all of that and things so yeah okay and so then once you made that realization what was the, the moment after you started down this path of web development what was the first sort of project maybe the origins that led up to buffer yeah so the first uh, so I had this fourth year project which was um, I did with four other computer science classmates and we built a location-based social network and this was like when the first GPS phones came out like the Nokia N82 N95 things and like before Foursquare and, and these things and that suddenly was just really exciting for me and I I thought about it as a startup basically and uh, the, the key realization for me at the end of the year was like my classmates don't think about it that way uh, and so I couldn't really continue it because I couldn't really just continue it by myself everyone was kind of you know you read about like Eduardo and Facebook and, and things and you think think that you know this could be huge and so um, but just a few different factors made it quite hard for me to just pursue that by myself um, but that was the point when I knew like I want, I want to do startups so as soon as I graduated I, um, I got a little bit of work um, I luckily had been doing an internship a couple of summers with a research company back in Sheffield in my home, hometown and uh, they asked me if I wanted to join them like full-time and work with them and I was able to kind of negotiate and do part-time with them so like two to three days a week so I did that and that allowed me to then also do a startup on the side basically which was like I knew I, I, knew I wanted to do that right away um, and so the first startup that I tried to kind of do, which was like really a startup, um, was called OnePage. Um, did that for about a year and a half after graduating. Um, learned a lot through that, made a lot of mistakes, had a co-founder that didn't work out, um, and pivoted a couple of times, tried to make it work. And then basically towards the end of like working on OnePage, I, I was, so I'd kind of been through uh, difficult thing of like uh, realizing that it wasn't working with my co-founder we had had a chat and decided we'll go separate ways but I kind of still continued with one page so by that point we'd got about nine or ten thousand users and so it felt like well there's something here like maybe we should or maybe I should like uh, try and make use of that it's, it's some traction in some ways um, but really the one of the key problems with one page was user retention 
there was no reason to come back and keep using the product. Um, so I also felt like those users were kind of stale, like they weren't that engaged. Um, so right at that moment, um, I was trying to pivot and try some quite different things with the same user base, but I also had this little idea that came to my mind as well, um, which was which was Buffer. And so it came through that whole time I'd been using Twitter. Um, I kind of found it towards the end of university and found it really useful. And it was a way for me, when I went back to Sheffield after uh, university, it was a way for me to meet other people interested in startups and technology and things. Um, and so I just, I, I loved Twitter and I kept using it and um, finding people that were in Silicon Valley and kind of being able to access that whole side of things. And I, would, I started to share like blog posts and articles around startups and web development and things. And I found that whenever I shared these articles, it would, you know, have this potential to trigger a conversation or people would favorite it or reshare it with uh, their followers. And it was just suddenly like, wow, this is really, really powerful. So I decided I wanted to start doing more of that. Um, so then I, and so then I started reading more articles, started using like Google Reader, being a bit more organized there. And then I, so maybe in the in the morning I would kind of read 20 articles, something like that, and find like five or 10 articles that I wanted to share. Mm. Um, and then I would start sharing them, but then I suddenly hit this like problem of like, oh, it's not that great if I share five or 10 articles in a row on Twitter. Um, I'm kind of flooding the stream. It's, it's not great for me either because I don't have anything else to share the rest of the day. So that's when I started thinking like, okay, I want to space out these these articles that I'm sharing on Twitter. And so that's when I thought, oh, I really need to like schedule these and space them out. So I looked around and like the key tools at the time were TweetDeck and Hootsuite. They both had like a scheduling feature. Um, but the thing was, you had to choose the exact date and time every time you would schedule something. And I, all I really cared about was spacing them out. Uh, so I, what I actually ended up doing was I had a notepad and I would write down the, the previous time that I'd uh, scheduled an article. And then I would, um, and then like when I was gonna schedule the next one, I would go back to my notepad, see when it was, and like just add a few hours to it and schedule it for that time and then note down the next time. And yeah, so after a while of doing that, I realized this is quite cumbersome. Um, uh, there must be a much better way like to do this. And uh, there was kind of nothing around at that time that would let you just, so the idea I had was like, just have daily times that you're gonna send things out and then have like a queue that you can just add things into. Um, and whenever you add something in there, it will just go out at the next available time slot mm -hmm. that you've chosen. So if we take a, a, a tactical pause here and talk a little bit about the investment um, interest and appetite in, mm. in Buffer uh, and with the hindsight that we have today about how much of a utility it is for many of us in this room uh, uh, to just coordinate and synchronize social, what were original conversations uh, with investors like for you considering that at this point in time, the way you've described it, it sounds more like a feature that is like uh, an, uh, a blip in terms of the feature yeah. set of larger companies like TweetDeck and Hootsuite? Yeah, it's um, a great question. So early on, the interesting thing was my experience with OnePage was, uh, with OnePage I kind of took this like uh, mythical mindset of like you just have an idea and you don't think about the revenue model and you just 
get a lot of users and like all that comes later and uh, I ended up having a, couple, a few investor meetings for one page and basically just no success and so and then I also had the thing with my co-founder and so I kind of ended up when I started Buffer I was in this position where I was like I'm gonna do this um, I don't need a co-founder I'm not gonna think about investment at all so it was actually about a year after I started uh, Buffer and I did end up uh, like uh, Meeting my co-founder, like co-founder Leo, which I'd already been in touch with him before, um, but we ended up like working together, and he came on board, and that was only a few months after that started. Um, so a lot of things changed, um, but it was about a year after, maybe a bit less than a year after starting Buffer and getting some traction, getting to the point where I could stop doing like freelance contract work. Um, so really, it was this mindset of like. I'm not going to be able to rely on investment for this. I have to generate revenue and make it work, and that's the only way I'm going to be able to work on it full time and not do freelance work. And then we got to that point, and like Leo and I had both been fascinated about Silicon Valley and San Francisco, and decided we'll just jump on a plane, go out there, see what it's all about. Um, and we did that, and then it was like and we, even when we went to San Francisco we were not thinking about investment still and then when we got there and we managed to have a few meetings with um, some with people that could give us great advice and some investors that's when we suddenly realized like oh like maybe maybe there's maybe it makes sense to raise investment and maybe there's maybe we can do it um, and even then after like almost being going for a year having some good traction we still had that challenge of like, this is like just a feature and things. So, um, the way we addressed it, we, so we, we tried to raise investment um, when we first got to San Francisco. We had a tough time and essentially we failed. We almost ran out of money completely because we realized that San Francisco is much more expensive than Birmingham in the UK where we've been. Um, <laughs> But we kind of left Birmingham at the point where we could just about afford to live in Birmingham and then just went to San Francisco, which is a pretty bad idea. Um, but we kind of burned through all of our savings. I didn't have much savings. We ended up going through like all of Leo's savings. And uh, we were really struggling with uh, like the fundraising side of things. And the big challenge we realized was like, as first time founders with no real track record, uh, um, we, I think I realized over time that it's like three things that investors are kind of looking for. One is the vision, uh, one is the team, and then one is the traction. And the first two we didn't have strong at all, so really it was down to traction. But then once we got there, we switched over completely to both of us focusing on fundraising, and it was just the two of us at that time. And so suddenly our traction was tanking. and. Uh, the only thing we had going for us was like not going well anymore uh, because the traction was still at that point where we had to tr tr trigger it ourselves. Um, oh. <laughs> we had some, some outward interference here, but yeah, so you had traction and, yeah. and it was dipping because It you was were dipping because we were focusing on fundraising yeah. um, and we were having these investor meetings and we felt like, you know, we we are kind of at that point where maybe like a, a seed round makes sense, um, but we were really struggling. So right in the middle of it, we decided to also apply to AngelPad uh, Accelerator in San Francisco. And uh, basically like we were really getting towards the end of 
our, well, also towards the end of our three months time that we had in San Francisco, but and towards the end of our uh, savings as well. And it was like just then that we got the call from AngelPad and they said like, do you want to be part of the next cohort? So uh, we jumped on that opportunity and that's when they invested. Uh, so AngelPad, the setup was 20K for 6% and uh, also 100K convertible on a, a, a 4 million cap, um, so which was from two VC firms, put it 50k, 50k each. So suddenly we had 120k. Um, we still weren't incorporated at that point, so they were like, "Where do we put this money?" We like, I'm not sure really how that works. <laughs> so uh, they put us in touch with Wilson Sansini, and then we like incorporated pretty qu- pretty quickly. Got set up with Silicon Valley Bank, and uh, yeah, and that really changed a lot of things mm-hmm. for us. So we'll revisit the whole conversation about funding in a, in a bit. Yeah. But maybe what we can do is we can transition to a little bit about, about uh, Buffer the company. And one of the things that Buffer is known for is the the, the value-driven culture that you've created. And you know, I think you were one of the first uh, startups that definitely that I was aware of that has publicly sort of listed them and has blog posts explaining them. And I just want to understand kind of why you created them, when you decided that this was something you should do, and what the impact has been internally. Yeah, uh, really great one. So when we started the company, we, it wasn't in our minds at all. Um, I didn't know what culture meant or, at all. And uh, then we started to grow and you know, grow the team. I think it was when we got to maybe six or seven people um, or eight people that we started to notice that this is a real thing. There's team dynamics. There's how people work with each other, and it, it all matters. Um, and we so we hadn't really approached like hiring with you know, culture fit in mind at, at the start because we didn't know what that was. And then it was right around that moment when we were about eight or nine people that. Uh, I think started to read around like I think a couple of key things that I remember discovering at that point was Zappos they've always been like the key company that we've had in mind as being like really values driven and having a strong culture and then there's also a book called Good to Great by Jim Collins a really really awesome book and there was a in particular there was a interview that Tony Shea from Zappos did where they asked him, like, what's one thing you would change uh, and if you could start again with Zappos? And I'm very surprised by the answer. He said that, um, so this is a company that you think of, like, is defining, like, the idea of being culture-focused. And he said they didn't put their values into words until they were over 100 people. And that's something that they would do right from the start if they, if they could start again. So as soon as I heard that, I thought, well, we have to do that now. Um, because we want, like, we were aiming to kind of be culture-focused and things by that point after we read those things. Um, yeah, and so we also had an interesting situation where, as I mentioned, we hadn't really hired based on culture fit. So um, we were, I think, about 12 people uh, when we decided to put the values into words. And we did a collaborative exercise. Uh, we had, like, a Wufu survey. And I ask people, I think there's a really great quote that says, like, um, you have culture, whether you like it or not, it's up to you whether you try and shape it. And so kind of based on that thinking, 
uh, we asked the whole team, like, how would you describe the culture that we have? And we used that to shape what the values were. And then, but we, but we did have a few people that were not, not fully aligned with those values that, that we ended up with. And so we ended up going through this kind of difficult transition. And so that year, which was 2012, uh, we, oh, 20, oh, maybe 2013 it was, yeah, it was 2013, we ended up going from 12 people down to eight. And uh, I personally fired uh, three, four people within like one month, one and a half months, um, which was a crazy time for us. Um, we went from 12 people down to eight and then back up to 12 by the end of the year. And that was basically what, what happened that year. And um, I can definitely say that the we might have been the same people by the end of the year, but the, the company was completely different by that point. Um, and I think the value, putting the values into words helped us to really act on the values and live fully to the values much more. And that's really where a lot of the transparency stuff that we've ended up being quite well known for really started off. Uh, so we transparency was obvious by that point for us that it would be one of the values. Um, but we also decided to phrase it as default to transparency. Um, the thinking was that, like we wanted our values to be phrased in a way where it's not just obvious, like if it's just transparency that everyone would say that's a good thing. Um, but we, with default to transparency, it's this idea that it's transparent by default unless there's a very good reason for it not to be. Um, and that's when we, very soon after that, we had salary transparency internally. By the end of the year, we made salaries completely public as well. And we did a lot of other things also. Um, we started to publish our investor updates, published all of our financials, um, all the user numbers, everything, and just more and more things. A lot of it was like internal reports that we already had and we just started to make them public. Um, and yeah, we've done a lot of things since then. Mm. And I think one of the things that you, you wrote about in a recent blog post was about this bad news communication, not just good news and best yep. reports, our numbers are great, but also when things get bad. Um, and you know, some of the startups that are in the room uh, as part of the Seedcamp family you know, have gone through highs and lows. Some of them, you know, came close to running out of cash. And and I guess to some extent, what's your recommendation in terms of how to communicate that, uh, how early to communicate that, um, and what's the what are the things, that, the pitfalls that could actually happen as mm. part of that? Yeah, I think I'm, I wouldn't necessarily say transparency is like always going to work or is is right for every company. There's probably certain industries or types of company. I know that if you're really dealing with purely with enterprise customers, it might be hard to, you know, make public what basically exposing what they're paying, uh, things like that. Uh, we have found it to be really beneficial. And I think, so we had an opportunity at the end of 2013, uh, we were like really, our transparency was tested in a big way. Uh, so we were we were hacked, um, basically hackers obtained, uh, they, they got through to our database, so really like all the way, and they obtained all the, uh, basically access to the Twitter and Facebook accounts that our, that our customers had connected to Buffer, um, so exactly what they'd kind of trusted us with, and uh, then basically started posting spam uh, through all of the Twitter and Facebook accounts. So yeah, I was. it was a Saturday morning, I was in a coffee shop in San Francisco, um, just casually 
uh, like, you know, checking Facebook and things, and I open Facebook and it's like just completely full of spam, and then I like. Uh, Heart sank, sweaty palms. Yeah, I was like, well, oh <laughs> shit. <laughs> it was definitely an oh shit moment, um, and uh, yeah, I, <laughs> I was not really sure what we'd do from there. Um, I think at one point during that, I even felt like I you know well, we, we had a pretty good one. You know, that was <laughs> maybe, maybe that's that. <laughs> um, yeah, and I, I looked a little bit closer, and it's like via buffer, and that's when it was like. Fuck. <laughs> um, and then I'd just scroll and scroll and scroll forever. It's just all just spam. I didn't even know that many of my friends were using Buffer, which was was interesting. And then I went over to Twitter and it's the same thing. And then we would like search for Twitter and it's just be like thousands and thousands of, of uh, posts. I think we calculated in the end it was like 200,000 uh, accounts or, or something. Um, but yeah, that was kind of our moment where we... It's a bad day in the op- at work. Sure. Yeah, definitely, definitely a low, a low point. <laughs> um, but it was a moment for us to, to, you know, decide: should we, do we stick to transparency here? And so we decided to do that. Um, it was a, especially tough because we didn't even know which, how the hackers had got in at that point. We didn't know much at all about what was going on. So we were scrambling to try and figure that out. Um, we were also scrambling to try and make sure that. You know, try and stop it. Um, the first thing we did was actually, like, stop our systems from posting, uh, like, anything. We thought that they might have been doing it that way, and we stopped that. And then some, we realized it's still going. So we realized that they'd actually obtained, like, basically the access tokens, which is the the passwords we have for Twitter and Facebook to be able to post for for the users. Uh, the hackers had obtained those tokens and we're using those directly to post so we couldn't really even stop it um, but uh, yeah we, we were working hard to, to resolve that um, but the whole time we so what we did was we wrote a blog post um, saying well the first thing we did was within a couple of minutes we just tweeted saying um, looks like we've been uh, compromised uh, really sorry like working really fast on it um, I, I ran faster than I've ever run before uh, back to my apartment from the coffee shop um, got onto a Google Hangout with the whole team, and uh, yeah, and we just had this. We had this blog post. We kept updating it. So if you, if you go to it now, it even has like ten updates or, or something. We were literally updating it every few hours. We sent an email to the whole team. We put banners on the website in every place that you could like be using Buffer just to tell people. Um, we told people what they needed to do, and um, yeah, and it was kind of amazing what started to happen it was definitely a really tough time a lot of people were not happy and things but suddenly like people started to really kind of uh, you know be on our side and be uh, like really encouraging us to you know and helping us get through that and yeah and that was also the end of 2013 which is where I mentioned like we kind of got back up to 12 people and um, going through this experience of really being disciplined on uh, hiring based on culture fit and letting some people go and then growing the team again, being disciplined about culture fit in the interviews and things. And yeah, the team we had when that happened, when we were hacked, was just incredible. Uh, It was uh, surprisingly, so we have, you know, a few of our values, like one is positivity and happiness and kind of this idea of, of, you know, 
always thinking about solutions and like no ego and, and this, these kind of things and it kind of felt like it all came together and it was one of the toughest things we've been through but it was also um, sort of some moments where it was just really fun to work with these people like we were all focused on like how do we get through this we were not complaining about what was going on at all um, so that was kind of a moment for me where I realized like wow this is working to be like focused on the on values and culture and things mm, excellent so for the teams that are in the room, uh, who has any questions they want to ask? Otherwise, I have one more that I could ask. Yeah. Um, so you guys are well known for having a distributed team. Yeah. Um, how how long was it until you made that switch to a distributed team, and, and how have you found it? It's, it's, it's distributed teams. Yeah, it's a great one. Um, so I think it kind of came partially naturally, and it was one of these things where. It was somewhat happened naturally, but it's also something that we deliberately chose. So uh, way back when we first started, me and Leo were, I was in Birmingham and he was in Coventry, um, like at Warwick University. And so we were about half an hour apart from each other. So not that distributed compared to today. We're like 37 people spread across 25 cities and four continents. Um, but even at that time, we were far enough away from each other that we decided to work separately most of the time um, and just once a week we would get together at my apartment in Birmingham and work together so uh, that was that was already kind of the beginnings of it a little bit. Uh, <coughs> the next thing was that so when we went to San Francisco we spent six months there we went through Angel Pad we tried to start working on visas and then we were suddenly hit by the the quota of how many visas they give out each year. Um, so realized we're not going to be able to be in the US. We have to leave uh, and we're not going to be able to get back to the US and like have a visa for a whole year um, because there's like the quota and how that works. So that's when we realized, okay, we have to go somewhere else. Um, we had an amazing time in San Francisco, so we were not that excited about just kind of coming back. Um, I, as you know, we both spent all of our lives in, in Europe and things. So um, we just decided, like, where should we go? Um, we opened Google Maps and looked around, and we ended up choosing to go to Hong Kong. So we went to Hong Kong um, for six months. Uh, so and that was like just after we closed our seed round. So we basically finished. We raised 450k after demo day, and then a couple of weeks later, we just uh, you know took the money, went to Hong Kong. <laughs> um, but yeah, we were in Hong Kong for six months. We, we had to grow the team in that time. And uh, in the early days, we grew the team mainly from like my personal network in the UK. Um, so uh, that's where we naturally ended up with like me and Leo and uh, Tom, like there was three of us at the time in Hong Kong, and then uh, a couple of people in the UK. And then after Hong Kong, six months in Hong Kong, we went to Tel Aviv in Israel. Spent three months there, and that was and and we kept growing the team as well. So I think we were maybe like six or seven by then, and we were kind of split like almost evenly between Tel Aviv and the UK. And that during the time three months in Tel Aviv, we also uh, flew everyone to Tel Aviv, and everyone we all worked together for like three weeks together. So that was kind of this experience of being distributed but having like kind of like a retreat which is now something we do every six months or so we get the whole team together somewhere different in the world each time um, so all of this happened and then after Tel Aviv uh, three of us got visas 
so we could actually be back in the US. And everyone else seemed to kind of be interested in being in the US, in San Francisco as well. So suddenly we had this moment of like, okay, we can decide now. Like, we could just, you know, have an office in San Francisco and be set up that way. Or we can choose to kind of keep being a distributed team. And I got some great advice right around that time from uh, David Cancel, who was the chief product, I think he was chief product officer at HubSpot um, through an acquisition. He, he's had like three, three, uh, three exits and startups, and now he's doing a startup again right now. Um, but at that time, I managed to get some advice from him, and he said he'd, he'd done both things. He'd, ha- he'd had distributed companies, and he's also had companies where he's had everyone in one office. And his, his advice for me was, um, they can both work great, but make sure you choose one or the other and don't end up like in the middle where you've kind of got an office and then you've got like two or three people somewhere else uh, like working remotely because, and I think uh, Basecamp have said, said this well, they say like, make sure there's no, uh, no advantage to being in the office and no disadvantage to being out of the office. And so there's kind of this idea that you can end up with like people feeling like they're second-class citizens if you do that. So, so uh, I, I kind of tried to think a lot about it, and we ended up deciding let's be a distributed uh, team. And one of the other key reasons was by that point we decided to have a really big focus on customer service. Uh, when I was in Hong Kong, I kind of had this moment where I thought like, why should someone in Hong Kong using Buffer have like a much worse uh, customer service experience than someone in the US and so the first three people we had on the customer service side was US, UK and Australia so suddenly we had like all time zones covered um, so yeah we just decided at that point to to fully embrace being a distributed team and that's when we had to do a little bit of work of like reversing things a bit and we really started hiring just from everywhere and started being completely distributed after that and yeah, and we've done retreats and there's a lot of things that we've done to try and kind of make it work. And yeah, we're really happy with how it's working now. And it's also, it's one of those things that's also part of the culture where through transparency and self-management and distributed team, it feels like we're creating kind of a different definition of what work is. Um, this idea that like you can you can do your work from anywhere you choose to. And we even encourage people to find that place where they feel happiest and most productive. Um, and so people in the team regularly travel. Some people are like fully nomadic. Um, I Right now, I don't have a fixed location. I've just, this year, I've been traveling a, a lot. Um, since the start of the year, I gave up my uh, apartment in San Francisco and I've just been you know, in Airbnbs. So the last four months I was living in Hawaii, working from there. So. Cool. Any other questions? Yeah. With your strong values, how do you assess the cultural fit in an entity? Do you have a particular question you'd like to So, just to repeat the question, it's about cultural value fit in the hiring process. Yeah, I'll see. I don't want to give away all the. Yeah, there's things. In some ways, we've found over time it's become quite clear. So, for example, our value of positivity and happiness, um, which is kind of one of the first values, um, that's around not complaining, not criticizing, 
uh, things like that. And it's a lot, all of our values are very much aspirational, and so I think we we all slip up like a lot, and we're w working on them a lot. Um, but that's one of the ones that often um, is kind of easy for us to spot. So even just in the first email, it's things like if someone's at a company right now and they're looking to transition to a different company, maybe there's, there's things that, about that work that they've started to not enjoy so much. Um, it's just like how they choose to phrase that. Do they say like that company is really bad and like doing it all wrong and things, or do they just kind of phrase that a little bit more thoughtfully and think like, you know, they're just not aligned with that company anymore, they're on different paths and things. So things like that we look out for. Um, we do end up like we take a look through the Twitter like stream of like what they're sharing and see if they're like bashing things a lot, complaining. But that's just one of the values um, as, as an example. And so there's yeah other things that we look for is kind of showing vulnerability. Um, so and 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 also like yeah another one around that positivity value is we, like Leo has a question he asks where he says. How do you feel like your life's turned out, like on a scale of one to ten? So we're kind of looking for people to be pretty happy with, like how their lives turned out. And um, another thing I kind of look out for is, uh, so one of the values is gratitude, and kind of looking out for people to, and we have one that's gratitude and one that's like be a no ego doer. So something I often ask is, um, at some point in the interview, I feel like everyone that um, we're going to end up interviewing that's been through like several emails and things is pretty smart and like done really well and probably has many different options at this point. So I'll often kind of say, you know, you've got so many, you've, there's so many options you would have, like you could go to many different companies at this point, anyone would be really lucky to have you, like, so wh why, why are you thinking about Buffer? And that's the moment where I'm kind of looking, like maybe they're going to mention like, oh, like, well, I've been lucky, I'm, I had a great mentor, like they really helped me or something like that. Um, so these are a few things, but it's definitely something we, we focus on a lot, we talk about it a lot. I'd say we do three to four interviews generally, and probably only one of those is focused on like skill, um, and the other three are mostly focused around culture. So. We're trying to make it work, some guy in India, San Francisco, Brazil, and we still can't have a video call people aren't just dropping out or it's interference and we don't just give it up and say let's just chat slack and then it doesn't work as well. So tools yeah. were not working. We end up switching to audio sometimes. We end up just like doing FaceTime audio or, or like just calls sometimes. Um, but I do think the video is really, really key for us. We found that um, I think some some distributed companies take a slightly different approach. I know Automatic we've been really inspired by and they've said that they do the whole interview process like without a call or without a video call or, or meeting. Um, and it's kind of based around this like uh, open source model and that's really, really cool. For us, we do a lot of video calls and feel like that face-to-face, -face, like seeing the emotion, like having the, the body language kind of, that's kind of things is, is pretty important. That's why we also meet as well. So um, if someone doesn't have a great connection, internet connection, we'll encourage them to try and find, get a better one, like even that's something that like people can expense, um, that, that's something we, we like to cover just because we think it's really important. Um, and yeah, even for example with retreats we make sure we're going somewhere that has really good internet connections part of the decision and when people are traveling and moving around 
there's a lot of encouragement to get advice from different other people in the team that have like travelled a lot and things and really encourage people to be somewhere where they can get a good connection. Um, so, but yeah, in terms of tools, yeah, for us, uh, we're using hip hip chat. I'm not sure there's not really necessarily a, a reason why we're not using Slack, but uh, uh, we're using hip chat. That's really really key. I think we wouldn't be able to live without that one. Um, and we do like a lot of video calls. We've played around with there's a tool called Squiggle um, for video calls, which is quite cool. And we also use Google Hangouts and this one called Zoom that we're checking out right now. Um, so that's really key as well. And then we use Trello and we use Hackpad and a few other things as well. Cool. Well, uh, let's uh, join the round of applause for Joel. For thanks for coming. Thanks. And for those on the podcast, uh, see you next time. Bye.